and welcome to the Human Awareness Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Haya, and this is our fourth season. Hi there. We have spent the last three seasons welcoming brilliant, vulnerable, and thoughtful people to share their stories. We've loved hearing what they have learned about their own human journey through love, intimacy, and sexuality. The Human Awareness Podcast can't replace the depth of learning that happens in one of our workshops at the Human Awareness Institute. But we hope that in these interviews, you're able to catch a glimpse of who we are and what we do. Mm, I love that. Shall we get started with the interview? Yes, let's do it. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. It's 2022. I can't believe we're here already, Um, but it's feeling good to me. I hope it's feeling good to you. And we are beginning season four with a really special guest today. And of course, I'm here with my co-host, Haya. Hi, Haya. Oh, here we go with me not finding my mute button. Hello. It's lovely to be back. Welcome back. Um, And we're here with a guest today that we're going to be exploring a really lovely, beautiful topic to launch a new year. Actually, I'm just thinking about that for the first time. There's a lot of stuff in our culture about um, body stuff at the beginning of the year. And so we have an amazing guest here to talk a little bit about her journey. Um, Go ahead and introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and where you're calling in from. Sure. So my name is Leah Carey. My pronouns are she, her, and I am in Portland, Oregon. Awesome. Ooh, how's it feeling in Portland right now? (laughs) You know, it's a little chilly, but Portland has felt like the epicenter of the apocalypse for much of the last (laughs) few years. So right now it's blissfully calm. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. May that continue forward as the trend for the year. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I I want to begin, Leah. Uh, you know, we were talking just a little bit right before we pushed pause about how we really love it when people are willing to come on the podcast and share their own stories, even centered around these topics, but just bringing themselves. And you had such a delightful, um, warm response to that of I'm an open book. And so I might just start with asking you to tell us a little bit about your story and why does this topic about um, embodiment self-love, being in your body, why does that resonate for you? Mm. Gosh, where to start? Um, So I grew up in a home where um, there was a lot of um, emotional trauma around my body. My father was an alcoholic, emotionally abusive, who around the time that I started growing breasts, started talking to me about how I was getting too fat. Now, mind you, at the time, I totally believed what he was saying, because, of course, he was my father. Uh, Mm. You know, I I was going to take his word as truth. I look back at pictures now, and I'm astonished to see that I was like a beanpole. I was so skinny. Mm. But my dad um, would say to me, um, you know, you're you're getting big. Uh, The big thing that or at least the phrase that landed for me with I think the greatest degree of emphasis was boys won't like you if you don't have pretty legs. Mm. Um, and I happened to have inherited my mother's very heavy, uh, sort of Eastern European peasant legs. Mm. 
Um, there was nothing genetically that I could do about that. But I took it on as this thing that I needed to fix. And until I fixed it, I was totally unlovable. And I was a second class citizen who was defective. Um, and then on top of that, my dad was also being sexually inappropriate with me. Um, and I want to be very clear that that was not hands on, um, but he was emotionally sexually inappropriate with me, talking to me about my body in sexual ways, talking about his sex life with my mother, talking um, about other women sexually with me and in front of me. Mm. Um, it was all really, really confusing. And then also at the same time, <laughs> he was saying to me that he needed to lock me in a room until I was 30 because, um, you know, he would have to break the kneecaps of any boy who showed interest in me. So if we're playing uh, toxic masculinity bingo here, I think we would have won by now. Right. Mm -hmm. It is the most confused. Well, I don't want to say the most because... Every person has their own different story. But for me, it was incredibly confusing. Am I so unattractive and unlovable that no one will ever want me? Or am I so attractive and so desirable that I have to be protected from the world? Mm. And so what I did was just completely shut down. Um, internally, I was, you know, I was boy crazy. <laughs> Eventually, I would also be all <laughs> <girl> crazy. <laughs> but um, like all of that stuff was still happening internally. But on the outside, you would never know it. I did not flirt. I didn't make eye contact with people I was interested in. I didn't know how to speak to anyone I was interested in because it felt dangerous to me. If somebody expressed interest in me, I ran away. Literally, they're mm. only... The couple of times I remember people expressing interest in me when I was like in high school, I literally would like pick up my books and flee the room because I did not know how to handle that. Um, and so all of this sort of spun up into really terrible body image issues. No one is ever going to love me because my legs don't look right because, uh, you know, and over time, I also began to to gain weight, sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy from my mm -hmm. dad. You know, he told me I was overweight and I wasn't. So in order to align myself with his vision of me, I gained weight. Now, obviously, none of that was um, was conscious, conscious, but it was certainly happening. Um, and so I lived like this into my early forties, having such a difficult time learning, not even learning, not having any idea how to present myself in the world so that I could be lovable, so that I could be attractive or desirable and get the kind of love that I wanted so instead, I settled for the people who showed up who were mostly, you know, varying levels of abusive, because that's what I thought that I deserved. Yeah. Leah, I, I want to um, zero in on this 
theme that I'm hearing in what you're speaking to, which is like, you know, um, I want to be very conscious not to spend a lot of time in this podcast kind of polarizing male and female in this. But I think that um, for a lot of uh, female identifying people or children who have female bodies, right, and are being responded to that way in our culture, there's this really strong link between my physical appearance, how others respond to that physical appearance and give me messages about that and my worth, right? My sense of love. Like I'm Mm -hmm. hearing you say, not only am I like something you have to hide away because my whole worth's wrapped up in whether someone finds me attractive or not. And if they like me, they're going to take me away. And therefore I have to kind of hide and, you know, be vulnerable to the man who might have prying eyes. But then this other conflicting, you know, message of you're not good enough. No one's ever going to love you because of your physical appearance. I just, I resonate with that so strongly. And I just, I wonder if um, you can point to like, is there a place where that narrative started to dissolve a little bit for you? The, the mm-hmm. strong link between how I am in the world physically equals my worth. You know yeah. what I'm speaking to? Yeah. Yes. Thank you for asking that question because I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Those of us who are brought up as little girls had our worth, were told that our worth was inextricably linked to how we look. Yes. Um, Not to say that little boys don't also get that same message, but it is a much more present, um, loud (laughs) message. uh, (laughs) Whoops, I just hit my microphone. Sorry. Um, It is a much more present message for those of us who were brought up as little girls. Um, For me, it the change didn't come until after both my parents were deceased. Mm-hmm. Um, which ha- my father died uh, back in 2000. So he's been gone a long time. Um, but even with him gone, I perpetuated his voice in my own head. Like I had become so loyal to his voice that I didn't let it die with him. So when my mom got sick and my mom and I were very, very close, but she got sick and passed away in 2015. And for the first time, I didn't have to live up to anybody else's expectations of me. I could let go of that voice in my head that always said, you have to be the good little girl who sort of um, fulfills everybody's expectations of you, who does the right thing so that you make everybody else look good. Like my mother never enforced that with me. That was just not a thing in our relationship, but it's such a cultural thing mm-hmm. that I held on to it without realizing it until after she died. And after she died, I was suddenly, I mean, it's really hard to say because I miss her so much, but the truth is that after she died, I was free to become my own person rather than to become the person who I had been brought up to be. Mm -hmm. And that led me to, um, I decided to take a year to travel the United States and um, sort of figure out what I wanted from my life and and where I was going to land next. I I was very fortunate that uh, my mom owned her home. So I was able to sell it to fund this trip. And in the process of that, 
I started exploring my sexuality. And that that's a bit of a longer story. But what's really relevant to this conversation is that I ended up finding my way into rooms where people were nude together. It's not something mm-hmm. I ever could have done in the past. I would have been apoplectic. <laughs> the idea <laughs> of people seeing my body. Mm-hmm. But I it started with a friend who encouraged me to go to um Oh, the word bathhouse is wrong because that brings up a lot of sexual connotations. Um, but just like a a bathing facility where that's clothing optional that has hot tubs and things. And I remember taking off my clothes and wrapping myself in the towel in the changing room and then sort of scurrying out to where the hot tub was. And noticing that the hooks for the towels were about 10 feet away from the hot tub (laughs) and thinking, oh, shit, (laughs) how is this going to work? And just taking the towel off and as quickly as I could, hanging it up on the hook and again, scurrying like a little rat over to the hot tub, (laughs) sort of all hunched over trying to hide all my bits. And it Once I got into the hot tub and I sort of like, okay, I'm underwater now. (laughs) Like, it's okay. (laughs) People can't see anymore. I started watching how other people were moving in that space and realizing that by scurrying and hiding myself in that way, I was bringing more attention to myself because (laughs) most people were just walking around being naked. (laughs) (laughs) And that was for me the first recognition that, oh, like, Nobody here cares how I look. They're just here doing their thing. What what can I do to be more like them? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, for most people who listen to the High podcast at this point, if you're four seasons in, probably you've heard that a lot of our workshops, our in-person workshops are clothing optional. And what? so... <laughs> what? <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um and this is a huge part of that, right? Because it's it's the process of letting go of a cultural barrier. Because clothes are, well, the, one of the biggest takeaways I had from my first workshop at High was clothes became functional for the first time, rather than also, or even primarily, a barrier to intimacy, a barrier to being seen, right? Um, and it is liberating. I can relate. And also terrifying. (laughs) Oh, so terrifying. (laughs) And the thing is that people will never understand it until they experience it. It's not the kind of thing that you can explain to somebody. And at some point, they'll be like, oh, yes, I understand now. And I'm going to go (laughs) do the thing. It's like they have to go through their own total like disintegration of their brain in order to get there. That was a terrible way to say that. But like they have to go through all the fear (laughs) themselves. You can't be talked out of the fear of doing it. Uh, You just, at some point, you know, I love the Aeneas Nin quote um, about, and I don't have it word for word, but at some point, it became too painful to stay in a bud. So the flower opened up and became a blossom or the blossom opened Mm -hmm. up and became a flower. Um, That's how it felt for me. 
I was in so much pain from having been so unhappy for my life that I had to do something different. And it turned out that the gateway for me to doing something different was allowing myself to expose my body. You know, another thing that I did, so I ended up joining this, um, this group here in Portland called Sex Positive Portland that has, um, it's, it's more, uh, it's a little bit more sexually focused than high is, but there are lots of um, clothing optional events. And that became incredibly important to me in exploring my relationship with my body. The sex part was fun and I enjoyed it and I learned a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. about myself there, but it was really the nudity part that helped me come home to my body because I realized I was so afraid that when I walked in that room, people were gonna look at me and be like, oh my God, put your clothes on. Nobody wants to see all of that. It was so deeply ingrained in me that my body was unacceptable, that I was certain I would be rejected. And what happened instead was I walked into that room and everybody was naked and everybody had, you know, a quote unquote flawed body by conventional attractiveness standards. And my body was just as quote unquote normal as every other body in that room, regardless of size, regardless of shape, regardless of physical ability. We were all just there being bodies together. It so profoundly changed my, my relationship with my body. And something that I've noticed since the pandemic began, because obviously we're not having in person activities, or we haven't been, those have started up a little bit, although now they're getting canceled again because of the variant. But um, over the course of the pandemic of not being in those spaces, my body image has regressed some. My experience of my own body has taken a backslide because I'm not in those rooms reminding myself on a regular basis, my body is just as normal as every other body here. Yeah, And I, you know, I had a different question I wanted to ask you, which I'll get to, but I want to just take a moment on that because it feels profound to me because I think that there's this idea similar to a lot of different areas of personal growth that you're just supposed to get there with mm. loving your body. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like yes. once you've figured it out, it should be that way all the time. And I think like many other things, it's a process, right? There's regression involved. There's okay. I got to a place where I really felt really good about myself. And then now a month later, I'm kind of struggling again. And yeah. I just appreciate that you just normalized that. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I do have a question for you and I, I'm notorious for asking complicated questions. So this may be a <laughs> point part A um, and part B can come later, but, and I want to give Haya a chance to ask you questions too, of course, but I'm, I'm okay. So the two things I have in my head is on one hand, I want to kind of take us back a little bit into like talking openly about what it is like to feel really uncomfortable in our bodies. Cause I, I don't know that we, I mean, I think it's common to say, "Ugh, I feel fat or I don't really like how I look or I'm struggling with body image. But I wonder if you might be willing to unpack kind of the emotion that sits there in the heart Mm. when you're struggling with your body. 
and what that's like on a real visceral level. So that's my first question. So I'll pause there. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So that's a big question. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, I follow, I I am now friends with a bunch of people in the uh, body neutrality space. And so that is uh, a kind of language that I really resonate with. And one of the things that I see them saying so frequently is fat is not a feeling. You, when you yes. say you feel fat, it's not actually a real thing. You're oh, feeling, yeah, you're feeling not lovable. You're feeling um, unattractive. You're feeling, there are lots of different things that that I feel fat might be pointing to. I feel fat is not actually a thing. Um, you know, I feel sad because the clothes in my closet don't look the way that I want them to. Um, I feel uncomfortable because I saw somebody um, notice my body in a way that I didn't like. You know, like there are lots of different things, but, um, and I'm going to say right up front, I have, there are lots of times in my life that I have said, I feel fat. Uh, today, I'm having a fat day. No, you're not. <laughs> um, but what I was feeling was profoundly undeserving and unworthy of love. And that was the language that I knew for it. Because again, that's how we train the people who we bring up as little girls to look at themselves. Um, you know, female sexuality is used to sell just about everything. I joke, it's it's used to sell everything from a cheeseburger to a high-end car. And sometimes it's a cheeseburger on top of a high-end car. Like (laughs) the model is laying on the car eating a cheeseburger. That's how we see the female form is as something that helps to sell us on something. And if we don't look like that idealized form, it's so easy to look at ourselves and say, I am not worthy. When in fact, that person doesn't look like that either. You know, like they have been made up and had their hair done and they're airbrushed and they're lit in a certain way and they're posed in a certain way. Um, A friend of mine used to, who is in the body neutrality movement, um, she used to work as a personal trainer for some of the Victoria's Secret models. And she Mm. says they would come in to each session and be like, here's the thing that I'm not happy with that we need to work on getting rid of. Even the Victoria's Secret models don't think that they have quote unquote perfect bodies. This thing is a total myth. It's a total myth. And I'm so grateful I asked you that question because you answered it so beautifully. And I think that um, there's an emptiness, there's a sadness, there's like a never ending, never good enough bucket in each of us that's like, yeah, I mean, the media, right? And we could talk about the media forever being, you know, the problem of all of this. But, but bringing it back to your life experience, too, you know, in this weird backwards way, even the people who love us perpetuate this myth, right? Maybe the most harmfully, 
right? Like we can see these ads on television. That's one thing it's, but it's deep when it's our dad, when it's our brother, when it's our sister, you know? Yeah. Even the people who love us the most. Now, you know, we can call my father dirty names because he did some really shitty stuff, but my mom, she loved me the best way she knew how. She was a really amazing parent. You know, she had all her own foibles, but she really loved me the best way she knew how. She was, and she never said anything to me about my body or how I looked, nothing negative, but she talked about her own body in incredibly negative terms. And I learned that. I I soaked that in from her. Oh, well, this is how women do it. This is, and I look like my mother, so my body must be like that too. Um so it, this all of this is happening below the surface and it is so rare unfortunately for anybody to grow up without taking it on to some degree. Yeah, I think that's really right. Um then I want to pivot just a moment. So my part B was, I wonder if you can explore with us a little bit about the link you see between one's relationship with our own body and sexuality. So, you know, in some of these spaces you described, there's both in the space, right? There's kind of acceptance for the body, but then there's also sex. And I, you know, so if we're in pain about our body, how does that impact our sex? And vice versa, how can sex be both harming and or healing in mm. our relationship with our body? Yeah. Oh, I, these are such good questions. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> You're answering them beautifully. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, okay. So you cannot at the same time be worried about how your body looks and also enjoying how your body feels. Those are two things that cannot operate in the same space. You cannot, similarly, you can't be performing what you think that sex is supposed to look like and sound like at the same time that you are enjoying the sensations of that sex. So you can't be like so focused on the outer of someone looking in at you at how you look, how you're performing, all of that. Um, you can't be focused on the outer and also experiencing the inner. So in that way, as long as we are dealing with our own internal monologue about how I'm too fat, uh, I don't want my partner to see my stomach um, in this position, I only want to, you know, have sex with the lights off because I'm afraid of blah, blah, blah. Um, you can't be having all of that inner monologue and also relax into, oh my God, this feels so good. I just want them to keep touching me. Those are two really different spaces. And so coming to some kind of peace, even if it's a momentary peace with our bodies, finding a way to quiet that voice is one of the doorways to accessing more 
sexual pleasure and sexual sensation. I thought for a really long time that my nervous system was in some way broken because I didn't experience sexual sensation. When, you know, if somebody just touched my arm, I could feel that. But as soon as somebody touched my arm in a sexual way, I couldn't feel it. Like I literally was numb. And I thought that there was something terribly wrong with me. What was wrong was as soon as somebody started touching me, my brain was off to the races about how I wasn't lovable or worthy, or what if I do this and I disappoint them and all of those things. So doing the work of, and again, it it keeps for me, and I, I will admit that not everybody has the same path, but I will tell you that for me, Being in those nude spaces with other nude people was how I kept bringing myself back to my own body and remembering it's okay. There are people in this room who find me attractive and there are other people who don't and that's okay too. Um, One other quick story. Um, During this sort of journey of sexual healing, I took myself to Jamaica for five days to uh, the Swingers Resort Hedonism (laughs) (laughs) 2. It was a great title. (laughs) It was way outside my comfort zone. (laughs) And I didn't end up having any sexual interaction with anyone for those five days. But what I did was I found a hammock that I laid in for those five days with my book. And I just watched people walk by. I just looked at people being in their bodies. And I remembered, I just kept telling myself, because there were people there, like, I think you would imagine that only thin, beautiful people go to those places. In fact, there were people there of literally every body size and shape, from Mm -hmm. very, very large to very, very small. And every single one of them had somebody looking at them with desire. That is what I keep going back to. No matter what you look like, there is somebody who wants to love on you. And that helps me to, to stay in touch with my own body. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think I'm seeing that a lot in the high workshops too. Um, I recently redid a um, the first uh, workshop um, the f- for the second time, and the first time I did it, I honest, there is a uh, you know this is not a big spoiler alert. There's a there's a disrobing ceremony where you're invited to undress, and the first time I don't remember it happening, mm-hmm. and I have a feeling I may have been in deep trigger, mm-hmm. and that is fascinating to me because. As we were leading up to this conversation, I was talking to Kate and I was like, you know what, this body image stuff, I I am standing on such a mountain of privilege there. I was, um, I was bullied relentlessly as a kid, like really, really badly, but somehow that part of it never stuck. And even with that, even with, you know, having the privilege of being a, um, a tall white guy, essentially, um, I I was in a place where it was really difficult to even think about being naked in front of people. And then doing it the second time when I knew what was going to happen, and I'd actually brought a partner there who had 
I'd never done high before. It was so delightful to be able to look around the room and see how people were reacting and how people, some people were clearly like quite activated and other people just had this sense of curiosity about them. And, you know, supporting everybody in the room through that with, cu- cu- with curiosity and love and beauty, ah, I reckon that, that feeling you mentioned of walking into a room of naked people and kind of feeling like you need to hide. I sensed the first time I did that. The second time, I just stood proudly. I was like, I've done this before. I've got this. And it's incredible how quickly that becomes normalized. You know, three hours later, everybody's walking around uh, naked and you yeah. don't even notice it anymore. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there there does seem to be this important piece on our journey with ourselves and our bodies. I, you know, I think even the people who have bodies, quote unquote, who resemble kind of close to the ideal, right? Who maybe don't have a lot of extra stuff heaped on them, although that's not always the case either. But um, there's still this, like, your body is really private. There's something wrong if you're exposed. And I think there is kind of this unconscious, um, unseen narrative for everybody in this culture that our bodies are not okay, except in these very small places like the shower or, you know, with a a committed partner or whatever the story is. Um, And I think that Leah, you were talking about how part of your journey of coming to love yourself more, being more comfortable in your body, it, it required quieting some of those really loud voices inside of your head. Right. Mm, and yes. I think the, one of the ways that we can do that is to kind of normalize for ourselves, being naked, being exposed with others and, and not having that result in our immediate death, the way that it sometimes <laughs> feels like it will. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Social death. Yes. Yeah. And uh, something else that I always recommend to people, because, because very frequently when I talk about this, people are like, well, there's no way I'm doing that. So what else can you recommend? <laughs> and so, <laughs> so the place that I recommend people start is, you know, if you're on, most of us are on social media at this point. If you're on Instagram, for instance, that you look at your feed and see how many aspirational people you're following. Those are the people who are thin, white, pretty, usually blonde. Um, And there may be some people of color in there, but they still are, you know, thin and pretty and uh, with a great smile and a big personality. Like that is the Mm -hmm. person who fills a lot of our feeds. And so I would challenge you to mute those people for what a, for a day for a week for a month whatever you feel like you can do and actively go look for some people in the body neutrality space or even the body positivity space except that is now being taken over by thin white women um so body neutrality is the place often where you can find this now, or um, hashtag ditch the diet is another one, especially in January. That's a big one. Um, (laughs) But really look for people who are showing real bodies. So that because what happens is if 99% of the images that you take in are of thin white women, that's what you're going to compare yourself to because it's the only barometer that your nervous system has. 
if you start to fill your media consumption with people who live in real bodies, not, um, you know, photoshopped bodies, but real woman bodies, that will begin to reset your nervous system to understanding, oh, that's the normal average body. And then it becomes much more okay to live on our own bodies because we're not comparing ourselves against this fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I feel like we collectively live with such a heavy weight on us. Like there's this, there's this, and, and I think that is the media. I think that is the, uh, you know, the, the, from every angle we are assaulted by, um, the Hollywood thing, but I think Hollywood, we're almost able to kind of filter that out as not real. And I think what you just mentioned about, you know, the everyday Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, that is almost more damaging because it's closer to home. These are meant to be real people, but they are also not that, you know? Yeah. And that makes it really, really insidious. Yeah. Not only are they real people, but we see them so often in our feed that it almost begins to feel like they're our friends. Mm-hmm. Like, they are a part of our world. I, that's really interesting what you're saying, like that the TV does sort of, I think that people still definitely, um, the their body image issues get triggered by seeing beautiful people on TV, but there is still a screen between us. There is still this understanding that they're living their life and I'm out here watching. Whereas with social media, it's like, oh, they're here in my phone, (laughs) you know, like they're here right next to my best friend showing off her new baby. Yeah. You know, and there's a, a, an immediacy and, um, a closeness that I think that can fool you into believing. Yeah. And then you add in TikTok where they just like feed in (laughs) (laughs) thousands of strangers and it's so much worse. Um, Leah, we're, we've got like 10 more minutes with you at the most. And so I, I also want to just ask you another question about, so, you know, we're talking, I love your select, your select, ah, okay. <laughs> hey, hey. Okay. Um, <laughs> Leah, we're wrapping up towards the end of the podcast and I am loving where you're going with this solution of like, let's be conscious of how we curate our social medias. I love that. And I also wonder about, we had a previous podcast, we talked about like the power of speech on our psyches. And I wonder if you've ever engaged any kind of like conscious, um, re storytelling for yourself, re kind of like giving yourself maybe affirmations or any kind of positive messages for yourself and, or any other, um, tactics you have for kind of building that relationship with your body. That's positive. (laughs) It's like, you can see into my history of therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I've spent a lot of time in therapy. (laughs) Great. Give us Um, what you got. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I, and a lot of it is about going back and re-messaging the memories I have with my dad. So for instance, um, this is a little more complicated than just like a mantra or or something like that. But um, I was working with a therapist and um, we were doing EMDR, which is like um, both talk and uh, sort of body activation for people who are 
not familiar with it. I, I got a lot out of it. Um, and we were going back to this moment where my father would say to me, um, boys won't like you if you don't have pretty legs. And I just, no matter what I did, I had talked about that in so many bloody therapy sessions and it was not moving Mm. at all. And, um, so my therapist just looked at me and, and said, well, what do you think it would take for it to move? And I was like, oh, wait, nobody's ever asked me that before. I, I Let me think about it. And what popped to mind was um, Harry Potter. I, I am a big fan of Harry Potter, which is a little complicated these days. <laughs> but um, this was before things got really complicated. Um, I remembered the scene with Neville Longbottom in the um, – with the uh, – what do you call the not a dementor. What are they called? Um, Which scene is this? He's shoot the thing where uh, they can change oh, into yes, whatever the form. The Bogart. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, and Professor is teaching them how to deal with the Bogart, and it comes out. And Lupin says, what can you do? Like, who is, who's the scariest person? And um, I apologize for anybody who's not a Potterhead. This is maybe not going to make any sense to you. But uh, Lupin says, um, who's the scariest person to you? And Neville says, Professor Snape. And he says, what can you do to make Professor Snape look laughable or become funny? And they end up putting Neville's grandmother's um, coat and her hat that has like a crow or something on it and her little handbag all onto Professor Snape. It makes everybody laugh and that weakens the boggart. And um, so, so this pops to mind when my therapist says to me, what do you think might help to move this issue? And I said, I wonder if there's anything I could do to make my father seem laughable or to make this experience seem funny. Mm. And she said, great, do that. (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) And, um, you know, that was the end of our session. So I had a week to think about it. And I thought, well, you know, putting silly clothes on him is not going to help. But this was in the aftermath of the former president being elected. um, And seeing how he was um, dealing with things um, and how he was like a toddler who was bullying the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something there because actually my dad really, or the former president really reminds me of my dad. Um, and there were these cartoons coming out, like political cartoons that were showing the former president as a toddler, um, you know, in his little bully uh, tantrums. And so I imagined that in this moment with my dad, he was saying to me, you know, nobody will ever love you if you don't have pretty legs, but he was that toddler having a tantrum Mm -hmm. And saying, nobody will ever like you if you don't have pretty legs. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. 
And, you know, again, I can't say that that phrase has lost all of its power over me. It's still there, but it is, I can hold it in such a different place when I think of it that way. It, it really saps a lot of the power out of it. Leah, wow, I just love that. And I'm going to steal that because it's just brilliant. <laughs> you know, and the spell, right? So the Bogart is your worst fear and you beat it by making it ridiculous. And the spell yes. is ridiculous, right? Thank Ridiculoso you. or something like that, right? Yes. Yeah. And you use that word right at the end. It's ridiculous. And I think that <laughs> it so applies to so much of the pain we take on about our bodies. It's mm. ridiculous. It's so laughable. And I think that oh, it's just brilliant to put it into that mindset, to take it out of the heavy and the serious and the all-encompassing and allow it to have levity and so that we can, you know, fuck that, reject that. Yes. You know, I love it. That's beautiful. Oh, this has just been juicy. I'm like so happy to have you on this podcast and do such a beautiful job talking about a topic that I think we've really been needing to talk about for a long time. Yeah. Um, I'm just so grateful to you. Thank you. It oh. was so funny too. When, when, so I just went upstairs to come and record this podcast and I'm actually in the house with another high person right now. And I said, Oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to talk on the high podcast about body image. And she, without batting an eyelid was like, Oh, you're going to talk about how fat I am. And I was like, <gasps> oh, wow. Jesus woman, yeah. <laughs> you have done this work for so long. And yeah, that's exactly what we're going to talk about because mm. That is just yeah. not so. When you started this podcast with your um, "fat is not a feeling," I was like, "Uh huh, yeah, no, mm -hmm. this is," and and it's just so, it's so present for so many people, and it is so sad that this is so prevalent that you know, so many of us take our value from how sexually attractive we are to other people, and that we actually become, in a way our own detractors in the process. And I'm just like, we don't need to do that. That is completely unnecessary. Yeah. And I do, I really want to acknowledge that while we talk about this a lot in terms of those of us who are brought up as little girls, people who are brought up as little boys did not escape this particular trauma. Mm -hmm. it, it picture out pictures differently, manifests differently for them. Uh, or for you. <laughs> um, and that doesn't make it any less difficult or any less valid. Um, 100%. Yeah. And I would add that there's a whole nother podcast about what it feels like when you don't feel like you belong in the body you live in, right? Oh, so there's, yeah. you know, you add on uh, gender dysphoria or any other kind of um, experience of being non-binary and it's a whole nother kettle of fish. So, mm -hmm. um, want to call that out and acknowledge that. And I think it'd be great if we had another whole body image podcast about that at some point. Um, but Leah, thank you so much for your time today and just giving me so much yummy things to think about and continue to put into my toolbox as I continue to work on this for myself. Thank you. Thank yeah, you for having that. me. Yeah. All right, my friends, we'll see you on the next episode. Leah, is there any way that our listeners can continue to keep in touch with you and continue to hear your, your lovely voice? Yes, absolutely. So I have a podcast. It's called Good Girls Talk About Sex. Um, I love that. <laughs> thank Me you. Too. I do too. Quick <laughs> <laughs> funny story. I so it in the podcast I interview um 
people about their sex lives. And I sent it to some friends after I did a test interview to see if they would want to, if it was something that they would want to listen to, to get their feedback. And one of my friends, who's very snarky, um, responded, I can't listen to this. Good girls don't talk about sex. And I was like, oh, well, clearly then that needs to be the, t- the title. Um, for the record, it is not just good girls. <laughs> it is bad girls and it is uh, non-binary people and it is uh, trans women, trans men. It's all over the place. People who grew up in little girl bodies plus trans women. And I, everyday people who I interview about their sex lives, um, it's just regular people talking about their regular stories, not anything fancy or wild. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, Good Girls Talk About Sex. You can find that on any of your regular podcasting platforms. And um, I'm also a sex and intimacy coach. And if you're interested in that, you can find me at leahcarry.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And I hope you just have a wonderful rest of your day, enjoying the ease in Portland. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you for tuning in to the Human Awareness Podcast. For more information about the Human Awareness Institute or our workshops, please visit our website at hi.org. That is H-A-I dot org. As always, it was a pleasure to have you with us. See See you soon. soon.